I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast. It is December, and I am once again here to ask you to support this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by becoming a podcast sponsor. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout out on the podcast. The only way to do it is to visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to make your donation. Cato accepts no government money. We depend on the generosity of our sponsors to help us advance the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support the Cato Daily Podcast and the Cato Institute. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, December 4th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Where does the evidence lie on the so-called lab leak theory as the origin of COVID-19? Matt Ridley is co-author of the new book, Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. We spoke last week. I guess I want to start with the most salient point to me right now, which is uh, what difference does it make if we know the origin is this versus that? At this point, to a lot of people, I don't think it seems very important at all. Yeah, I'm puzzled that people say that. I think it matters a lot. Um, For a start, we need to know so that we can prevent the next pandemic. Uh, I mean, if this pandemic began as a result of a particular aspect of the food trade, then that's very helpful for us in preventing the next pandemic. If it began as a result of an accident in a laboratory, then we need to think really hard about uh, how to uh, uh, regulate practices in, in laboratories. And also, there's another reason we need to know, because, you know, bad actors are watching this and saying, wow, you know, there's a lot of disruption in the world as a result of a very small problem that's started as very small anyway. And um, so rogue states or bioterrorists are thinking, maybe we should invest to invest in some virus research and you know what when the world health organization comes to investigate they're they're going to give up quite quickly and say we don't know we don't need to know so i think that's another reason why we should should find out so uh in your research uh as this question which was a question almost from the very beginning as far as uh i recall us and european involvement so to speak with this with this virus the qu- question was you know what was the source And uh, to the extent that public officials have been discussing internally, which we have some knowledge of internal communications about this, and externally, what were their sort of official uh, positions with respect to the source and whether or not the source was important? Well, um, around the 1st of February, there was a phone call between British and American uh, scientists, uh, senior scientists, government scientists, but also virologists. Uh, It was on a weekend. And this was when the uh, sequence of the genome of the virus had just been released, and they just had their first look at it. And going into that phone call, a number of senior virologists said, I am concerned this looks like uh, it might have been engineered by uh, in a laboratory. Not just accidentally released from a laboratory, but engineered in a laboratory. And, you know, we've seen in Jeremy Farrer's account of that meeting that, uh, and he's the head of the Wellcome Trust in the UK, that uh, one of those scientists was 80% sure that had happened, another was 60 to 70, and another was 50%. Now, they came out of that meeting 
and almost immediately drafted two uh, scientific articles, one for The Lancet and one for Nature Biomedicine, saying we can rule out any lab-based scenario, and anyone who thinks it came out of a lab is a conspiracy theorist. So something very important changed their mind in that meeting or very soon after it. And so there have been in, uh, several attempts to get hold of emails that might explain this, and we've, they've been released on both sides of the Atlantic, but they are pretty well 100% redacted in both cases. So they tell us nothing about what was, what was said then. So there's a very big difference between what they were saying in private, which is we think a, a laboratory origin is very possible, and what they very quickly said in public, which is that we can rule that out. It's a conspiracy theory. Social media can start censoring it. The media needs to ignore it, uh, and so on. And it's only really in May 2021, a year and a quarter later, uh, that the dam on that breaks and the media starts saying, hang on, there is actually um, such poor evidence for a natural spillover and such good evidence that a laboratory might have been involved in a very relevant viral research that we need to look at it again. And from then on, we get a much more honest conversation between these two hypotheses. Uh, so how have you evaluated that uh, conversation before and since May? Well, we, uh, Lena Chan and I, uh, began getting interested in this around May of 2020. Up until then, both of us thought, right, it's been ruled out. It's not a lab leak. It's it's going to be like SARS. We're going to find out within a month or two, like we did in SARS, like we did in MERS, that there's an infected animal in a market that many of the early cases have a connection of this kind. They're food handlers or chefs or something like that. That was the case with SARS. Um, uh, and then that didn't happen. And in May, the Chinese authorities announced that all the animals they tested from that seafood market in Wuhan had tested negative. There were positive samples, that, but they were from countertops and sewage and things like that. They, they looked like human samples, not, not animal samples. And none of the relevant animals were for sale in the market, no pangolins or bats, which were the two species that were being fingered at the time. So uh, at that point... We both got more intrigued. Alina did this extraordinary bit of research in which she showed that the virus was surprisingly well adapted to infecting human cells from the start, unlike SARS. It didn't have to go through a phase of adjusting to this new host. Um, and that implied that it somewhere it had been lurking in humans, either in human beings in a rural area or in human cells in a laboratory. Uh, and so we both got more interested in what research was being done in that lab. And it was around that time that it emerged that the closest relative of this virus, uh, which had been uh, found in a freezer in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but collected 1,800 kilometers away in southern China in Yunnan in a bat cave, um, had actually been collected from that bat cave because there had been an outbreak of human disease in that bat cave, something that had not been volunteered by the, the Chinese scientists, but came to light as a result of um, work by uh, 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 open source analysts, internet sleuths, amateurs, guys who know how to use search engines. In, in this case, particularly uh, a scientist called Rosanna Segreto in, in Italy and a, um, uh, a, a guy called The Seeker in India who knows how to, to find his way into Chinese websites. Um, so uh, this is a very interesting case where 
not just amateurs is the wrong word, but 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 ordinary people in their own time have made a very important contribution. Citizen journalists, citizen scientists, unlicensed uh, journalists, so to speak. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, you say the dam broke in May of 2021, but uh, this conversation that you describe uh, had been going on for many months up to this point, uh, but mainstream media sort of ignored it. Yes, it, the whenever the laboratory leak hypothesis was mentioned, it was dismissed as a conspiracy theory in the mainstream media, with some. Some honourable exceptions. There were one or two media that that, that didn't do that, um, and also there was a very uh, frequent conflation of the idea that it was an accident in the laboratory with the idea that it was a deliberate bioweapon program, um, and uh, so in ruling out the deliberate bioweapon program, a lot of the commentary sort of felt they had automatically let, ruled out any lab-based scenario, to quote from one of the papers. And that makes no sense because there's a world of difference between someone deliberately trying to design a bioweapon with the help of the People's Liberation Army um, and uh, deliberately releasing it and uh, to kill people, which is an extremely implausible crackpot conspiracy theory frankly you know it might be true but that you know it's not a bad description of it there's a world of difference between that and somebody working in a lab on experiments with bat bat-borne coronaviruses of which there were lots of experiments going on in wuhan more than anywhere else in the world and having an accident or maybe not even having an accident you know, nothing goes wrong in the experiment, but because you're only doing it by security level two, which is how they did most of the experiments, somebody catches a cold. And it might well have been, you know, these were probably younger people doing the experiments. They wouldn't have been ill enough to go to hospital. They may not have even realized that they had infected themselves. Yeah, that's a, an important distinction, because if you were planning this as a bioweapon attack, couldn't have gone more poorly. Right. And uh, it, it's not well designed as a bioweapon. It's not going to wipe out the enemy army, after all. Um, uh, you can't control against it. The Chinese showed that they didn't have a, a vaccine against it. You know, they hadn't vaccinated their own army or anything like that, you know. And frankly, most bioweapon programs are defensive. Um, and that, I think, applies to the Chinese uh, research, too. I mean, you know, the Chinese were very concerned about bioterrorism during the Beijing Olympics. Uh, they have a lot of programs looking into this because they're frightened that one of their enemies will use a bioweapon program on them more than they are keen to use a bioweapon program on one of their enemies. And the Russians are probably mostly the same and the Americans uh, are the same. So, uh, you know, most of most bioweapon research is is trying to understand what others might do to you rather than trying to design a weapon and there is very little evidence uh, well i suppose there's there's evidence if you go back um a very long way to the use of smallpox in depopulating the americas or something of, of anybody successfully using a biological agent as as a weapon so how does this uh, you know to the extent that this story is credible and there's a fair bit of evidence 
to support it, uh, what changes or what ought to change with respect to our views of this kind of research, um, our views of who is doing this kind of research, and, uh, you know, as importantly, foreign policy with a country that, oops, made a, arguably a big mistake. Well, I'm quite shocked. I'm someone who's been following genomic research for 25 years. I've written several books on the topic, uh, but I hadn't followed virology in particular very closely. And I, particularly in the last 10 years, I haven't been paying a lot of attention. And I am stunned by what has been going on in laboratories. That is to say, taking viruses that are known to be dangerous, taking them into the laboratory, altering their, sequencing their genomes first, learning amazing things, amazing details about how they work, then altering the sequence of their genomes in such a way as to increase their infectiousness with a view to finding out how close they are to being ready to cause a pandemic. That's the purpose of the research. There's no problem with that. But, you know, in doing so, you're, you're effectively making them more dangerous. And you're then testing them on human cells in the laboratory and on humanized mice, that is, mice carrying human genes. Uh, and you're doing this at quite low levels of biosecurity. It's not just in Wuhan that this is happening, but if you wanted to get involved in research into SARS-like coronaviruses, the Wuhan Institute of, Labor of, of Virology was the leading laboratory in the world by a mile. I mean, it was the place with the biggest collection of such viruses. It was the the place that had produced the most research on such viruses, published the most papers, uh, had done the most experiments. Um, it was the place to which you know the University of North Carolina turned when it wanted to do some of these experiments itself. And it said, could you supply us with the sequences of some of these viruses? And that resulted in a collaboration with a very famous paper that came out in 2015. So um, what should be done? Um, uh, clearly, I think that the biological uh, science community needs to uh, be much more transparent about what's going, going on, set much more sensible limits about what is sensible and what is not uh, that the should be done in this case. And I think the world needs to come together on a political level and devise a treaty, a pandemic treaty, if you like, um, which says if a pandemic begins in our country, we will promise to be transparent with information about what research we've been doing, about what work is we what we know, about sharing as much data as possible. And the more countries that sign that, the more it'll shame those countries that don't sign that treaty into signing it. That's roughly how you know, we deal with nuclear proliferation uh, or indeed airline accidents. You know, we, we make sure we learn from rather than just throw blame around um, these, these events. Um, but, w uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming from the point of view, and so is my co-author, Alina Chan, of a huge fan of biotechnology. I think it's incredible and fantastic what we can do for the benefit of humankind and the benefit of the planet in agriculture as well as medicine um, by editing the genomes of uh, plants and crops and, uh, uh, you know, uh, human pathogens and so on. But when we're dealing with dangerous pathogens, we should not be making them more dangerous, bringing them into cities to study in labs from, from the wild. 
Um, this stuff, I'm afraid, as one scientist put it, is like looking for a gas leak with a lighted match. In the United States, uh, in response to uh, this coronavirus that uh, sort of hit the U.S. in January, February of 2020, we've, we saw failure after failure in terms of uh, attempting to deal with it. And for a lot of people, many libertarians, if this is the way, the question is, is if this is the way our public health agencies respond, what good are they? Like, this is the reason we have them. We have those agencies specifically for moments like this. How did other national health agencies handle it? And how did the WHO handle it? Well, I think that uh, this pandemic has found a lot of public health agencies wanting. I mean, in the UK, Public Health England, which is the leading uh, agency on this, was effectively saying in the early months, leave it to us. Uh, we're not going to go to the private sector. We don't believe in them to, to get uh, diagnostic tests going. And they had to change their minds on that very quickly. They weren't able to ramp up. There was there was a, a great deal of inefficiency. And the pandemic preparedness plans were all about influenza. They weren't ready for, for this kind of viruses. And so this kind of virus. Um, now, arguably, we should have been spending more on getting ready for pandemics, but we'd probably have prepared for the wrong pandemic. Um, and there's we would have had to ramp up everything anyway. As for the international side, I do think the World Health Organization has behaved extraordinarily poorly in this. Now, that's not to deny they've done some good stuff, both in the past and uh, during the pandemic. But right at the beginning, the World Health Organization ignored Taiwan's desperate pleas that something scary was happening in Wuhan because Taiwan is not a member of the World Health Assembly at China's insistence. They ignored the suggestions from a lot of people, including in China, saying this is spreading human to human. They said, no, our Chinese uh, um, uh, members are telling us it is a, a zoonotic disease. People are catching it from animals, not from each other. Long after that was clearly not the case. They were echoing the Chinese reassurances on that point at a time when the Chinese, for reasons we don't fully understand, the Chinese authorities were were um, very reluctant to admit that human-to-human that -human transmission was occurring. Uh, so the existence of the World Health Organization at that point gave false reassurance to the world because you know the world was saying, well, the WHO says it's okay, so it must be okay. And then again, six or eight months later, the World Health Organization says, we're going to go in and investigate how this started. And we're going to work with our Chinese colleagues and we're going to come back with the answer. And so the world backed off. You know, my own government, the British government said, um, we're backing the World Health Organization to solve this problem. You know, they didn't say we're going to do an independent inquiry ourselves. They said, we'll leave it to the World Health Organization. Well, they took six months to negotiate terms of reference for this study. And when it started at the beginning of 2021, uh, at the end of January 2021, uh, it turned into a basically two-week tourist trip around the sites of Wuhan for the uh, outside scientists whose membership had been approved by the Chinese authorities and included people with very strong conflicts of interest who had been working very closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And then at the end of this tour, these Chinese and Western scientists sat down at a press conference and said, we think a lab leak is very unlikely. We think what is likely 
is that it got here on frozen food from somewhere else, which was the favorite Chinese theory at the time, which is a ludicrously implausible theory because why wouldn't it have turned up in other cities or why wouldn't it have affected people where the frozen food was coming from or why did it disappear once it appeared once in the, in the frozen food market and so on. So that World Health Organization investigation up until February, March of 2021 had effectively wasted the world's time vital time when independent scientists could have made good inroads into finding out uh, what had went on while the tri while the trail was still warm so i i think there is nobody who's looked at this objectively and who isn't party pre with the world health organization uh, in the first place who would disagree with the fact that the existence of the world health organization probably made it harder for us to find out what went on. Now, you may say there's no other way of doing it. You know, we can't force uh, our way into Chinese laboratories. But as I say, I think if we all signed a treaty saying, look, we're going to be as open and transparent as we can, will you please sign this treaty? Then it does at least start a conversation about this. Matt Ridley is co-author of Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 